This Spectator podcast is brought to you in association with Merian Global Investors, proud sponsors of Shakespeare's Globe, together committed to providing the space to perform. For a chance to win one of 50 pairs of prize tickets to the Globe's summer season, visit merianattheglobe.com. Competition terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, I take a look at the war on meat. How vegans won the moral argument against carnivores. Plus, I also look at the Archbishop of Canterbury's comments in this week's issue of The Spectator, where he's interviewed by Fraser Nelson, and we look at why he isn't that bothered about Anglicans defecting to the Catholic Church. And finally, we look at Michael Gove's crusade against wood-burning stoves. What do you do when a vegan friend comes over for dinner? It wasn't so long ago that this would have induced a panic in most hosts, but that's probably not the case any longer. According to the Vegan Society, demand for vegan food increased tenfold in 2017, and people on plant-based diets has quadrupled. So, is meat-eating now a fringe movement? I'm joined by Jenny McCartney, who writes in this week's cover article that the war on meat has only just begun, and Dominica Piasecca, a spokesperson for the Vegan Society. So Jenny, you say that the war on meat, as you describe it, has become a bit like Brexit, with both sides thinking the worst of each other. Why do you think this has happened? Well, I think partly due to the internet and partly the style of our political debate now is that everything has become a part of identity politics. And I can see that the question of whether you're a a carnivore or a herbivore is sort of becoming tied into wider issues of identity, even associated with masculinity, femininity, left, right politics. And it's quite interesting that now what we eat has become a signifier of who we are. Dominica, you're a vegan yourself. I mean, what was it that made you adopt veganism? So I did it for ethical reasons. Um, I've always felt a connection with animals and I always thought that I was an animal lover. But when I was 16, I sort of started thinking about my life, as you do. It sort of occurred to me that there is no need for us to eat animal products, no nutritional need. Uh, We can get all the nutrients from plant sources. So I thought if there is no reason for us to eat animals, just like Jenny wrote in her article, actually, um, then what's a good reason to eat them? So since then, I've changed to a vegan way of living. In your piece, Jenny, you talk about carnivores used to have the cultural capital and that meat was almost this kind of symbol of masculinity. I mean, why why do you think that that's changed? I mean, do you think perhaps you know, feminism has got anything to do with it? Is it seen as a kind of feminine thing to be a vegan? I think there was a way of seeing the world in the 50s and 60s, 70s, which was um, much more free of guilt. And the philosophy behind it was much more what can we get out of the world? How can we exploit the resources of the world, including animals? And I think there's been a cultural shift from a philosophy of exploitation to one of preservation. Obviously not one that's got everywhere, but I think that culture is changing in that way. And so attitudes have moved from... The, the sort of picture of a successful guy who's kind of eating steak and smoking and driving a huge car, and that's also quite a masculine image, to somebody who might be working out where they are in relation to the world in a slightly gentler way and also thinking, how can the world sustain, how, how can it cope with my presence in it? Dominica, we're obviously coming to the end of Veganuary, as it's been called, but it doesn't seem as if support for veganism is, is going anywhere. In fact, it seems to be becoming more popular than ever. I mean, why do you think there is so much support nowadays for veganism? 
I think people are slowly realizing that there are very convincing arguments as to why people should go vegan. So ethical arguments, environmental health arguments as well. And I think particularly with the rise in social media, people are sort of being exposed to this information more and more. And um, yeah, I think it's it's basically due to celebrity influence as well. Uh, people are finding out new information and it's becoming so much easier and more convenient to be vegan as well with the growth in the number of vegan options in restaurants and vegan products in supermarkets as well. And just on the point of identity politics, I think it's important to recognize that veganism is not just a dietary choice. It's actually the moral conviction that killing animals is wrong and your diet is just one way in which you express that deeply held belief. So it's not something that vegans do to sort of differentiate themselves from other people. It's just a deeply seated belief um, that animals shouldn't be exploited for us. So I think that's the key difference here. And I know a lot of people sort of um, understand veganism to be just a diet choice, but it's, it's much more than that it affects every aspect of your life so whether it's the footwear that you wear and maybe the clothing you wear or the the places you visit such as zoos and circuses are also against the um, vegan philosophy so it definitely encompasses much more than just your diet choices i think that's really interesting what you're saying because you know a lot of veganism is based on an ethical argument which is that we shouldn't Mm. be killing or consuming or exploiting animals but other things are feeding into it now with more people becoming interested so it becomes about health it becomes about your attitude to climate change and that's where things begin to get more complicated because you know if we're just told for example that aside from the moral question of whether we should be eating animals that, for example, beef and lamb are are big contributors to global warming. Depending on where that meat is farmed, it, it can be very different outcomes. So, for example, UK farmers will be perhaps using grasslands that would not be useful for growing crops, whereas in other parts of the world, there'll be kind of deforestation associated with very intensive beef farming. So there can be very different effects on the climate depending on where you're getting your meat from and how it's being farmed. And that's probably, if you're thinking about it in terms of climate and in terms of health, that kind of thing becomes more important. Yeah, of course. The moral argument is definitely the, the main one and that it's, it's one that sort of vegans agree on and it's very difficult to refute that. But we accept that with maybe environmental and health reasons, there's some room for argument. So, for example, shopping locally and seasonally is important, but actually studies show that it pales in comparison to the impact you can have by changing the types of food you eat. So we recognize that all farming has an impact. So obviously vegetables and fruit and other vegan foods also have some sort of an impact of, on the environment. But with animals, they obviously eat much more food and drink much more water than a human would throughout their lives. And they also pollute the environment by emitting methane, like you mentioned. And they also produce a lot of waste that then goes into our oceans and pollutes fish there and other life. Uh, forms of life so it's a very complex picture but on average an off-the-shelf vegan diet can be more environmentally friendly than a non-vegan one for the simple reason that animals require a lot of resources um, to keep them alive and when you think about how many of those resources an animal will consume throughout their lives and just compare that with the amount of food if you like that the animal will provide us at the end of their lives then this uh, comparison I think is in favour of veganism. Dominica you're also a vegan you're involved in vegan activism what sort of thing do you do to encourage people to 
become vegan? Yeah, so I know there is a lot of misinformation out there about all the different sorts of vegan activism, people storming supermarkets and whatnot. So I just want to make it clear that the vegan society doesn't condone this type of activism. We think it's very ineffective and it sort of makes people feel defensive if you force down the message, if you like. So what we always encourage is to spread the vegan message in a peaceful and positive way by having meaningful conversations, answering people's questions and showing them the benefits of veganism because that's why we've been able to grow this movement it's not because we've been threatening and insulting people and veganism at its core is about uh, it's about compassion so this compassion towards animals should obviously be extended to compassion for humans as well so we always try to encourage our supporters to spread the vegan message in a positive and peaceful way and Jenny just finally I mean do you think there's a middle way between veganism and well, in certain aspects of this discussion, there are. I mean, obviously, if if you're vegan from a purely or largely moral point of view, then no, because you'll think that eating meat is wrong, no matter what. But if you're looking at it from a climate change or a health point of view, then certainly. I mean, we've seen the rise of this thing called flexitarian, which sounds perhaps to many people like a cop-out, but it sort of means people trying to eat more plant-based products and less meat and meat of a better quality. And that seems to me, if people aren't ready to become vegan or vegetarian, it seems quite a sensible way of having a more sustainable diet. I mean, one of the problems that we've got is that in 1960, the world population was 3 billion, and now it's 7.7 billion. So there are just so many more people. And um, even whether we're vegan or, or meat eaters, we're using resources in terms of our flying, you know, driving, fast fashion, use of plastics, buying things with built-in obsolescence. So there almost needs to be a whole shift in how we understand our relationship to the planet. And it's not just about meat-eating. And what do you make of flexitarianism? Is that something that you'd encourage people to think about who are perhaps not quite ready to go full vegan? Yeah, I think it's promising that so many more people are looking into vegetarianism or flexitarianism. Of course, as the vegan society, we would always encourage them to go all the way and become vegan. But just looking at my own example, it took me several years to even become vegetarian. So I know the sort of difficulties that people face on the journey and the sort of obstacles that they face. And this is why the vegan society is here to help people to overcome those obstacles, to provide the information they need, whether it's about the practicalities of becoming vegan or maybe vegan nutrition and any consensus people have about that so I would say it's, it's really good to see such an interest in vegan or vegetarian diets and flexitarian diets as well and just finally I have to ask you both whether you've tried the Greg's vegan vegan roll <laughs> vegan sausage roll I, I haven't I'm not a huge sausage roll fan <laughs> anyway and I'm afraid I find the corn option even less appetizing <laughs> Dominica have you tried it yeah, yeah, we've tried it. I actually think the Vegan Society staff is solely responsible for the shortage of vegan sausage rolls here in Birmingham <laughs> because um, every store we go to, it's always, nearly always sold out. So we've been enjoying them very much this month. Thanks, Jenny and Dominica. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Next, are Anglicans hoping to reconcile their differences with Catholics? It certainly sounded like that when Fraser Nelson interviewed Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, for this week's magazine. 
When the Archbishop was asked whether he minded whether Anglicans were converting to Catholicism, the Archbishop said, who cares? Well, I'm joined by two people who might care a little. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, and Damien Thompson, presenter of our Holy Smoke podcast, to discuss whether Anglicans and Catholics have more in common these days. So, Peter, do you think Justin Welby is right to say that it's 2019 and Christians should focus on everything that unites them rather than divides them? Well, they've rather got to, haven't they? They have to huddle together for warmth. Uh, The days when they could all be viciously sectarian to one another are gone because there simply aren't enough people around to do that anymore. All of the Northern Hemisphere Christian churches, and particularly the Western ones, are in a terrible fix, and they need to hang on to each other uh, if they're to survive at all. So it's it's not really a virtue to say that they're going to be more united. Damien, what do you think? Do you think Christians have more that unites them than divides them? Well, I couldn't agree more that lots of Christians are huddling together because the figures are very, very clear. There's a very sharp decline in attendance at mainstream Christian churches throughout the world. And actually, mainstream Christian churches tend to be confined to the West. So you're talking about Europe and America. We used to think that American Christianity would survive come what may. We now know that, well, it'll survive, but that it won't thrive. And that church attendance is falling roughly at the same rate as it is in Europe. The huddling together is difficult when there's a profound division between liberal and conservative Christians that runs through denominations, faith traditions, whatever you want to call them, runs through them rather than between them. So, in other words, a liberal Catholic tends to have more in common with a liberal Anglican than he does with a conservative Catholic. You take my point. Although I think one has to add that the search for doctrinal unity, I think, has come to an end. It's perfectly clear that Anglicans, whether conservative or, or liberal, and Catholics are not going to reach agreement on the issues that have divided them for centuries, really important doctrinal issues like the the nature of the Eucharist or the authority of the Pope. I mean, we spent so long, we spent decades talking about this. In fact, the only people talking were professional ecumenists. The people in the pews had no particular interest in, in, in joining up, and it will never happen. Well, not merely do they have no particular interest in joining up, they found that some of the results of it tend to drive them away. The Church Church of England became a lot less like the Church of England during that period, and an awful lot of people drifted away from churches they'd attended for years, and there's there's a huge gap. Well, exactly. The same could be said for the Catholic Church. I mean, Catholic and Anglican services began to resemble each other more and more. And actually, that's continuing. You go to an evangelical church, and these days in externals, it resembles a Catholic service much more than you'd think. You know, so many evangelical churches wear vestments, for example, and have the rough structure of a Catholic service. But the fundamental differences remain, and it really annoys me when people pretend that they don't. Anglicans are never going to accept transubstantiation. The Catholic Church is never going to accept women priests. So let's stop talking about it, because we're not going to get anywhere. (laughs) Fair enough. Also, in Fraser's interview, he asked Justin Welby about the Anglican vicars who are defecting to Catholicism, and Welby says, who cares? Damien, I mean, do you think that's a strange thing to hear from the Archbishop of Canterbury? There's a time when it would have been a very strange thing to hear from the Archbishop of Canterbury, but uh, Justin Welby is one of those evangelicals who's very friendly towards Catholics. He tends to think of people either 
as, as Christians or not, and isn't himself particularly interested in, shall we say, that he understands the fine points of doctrine, but doesn't necessarily see why they should divide us. In that respect, he's, he's really unrepresentative of the, the, the typical churchgoer. Other Anglican bishops, for example, I'm thinking of the, the um, Bishop Charters, the former Bishop of London. I remember he was always um, rather unfriendly towards any Anglicans who decided to become Catholics. On the whole, it tends to be Anglo-Catholics, those who mimic the Roman Catholic liturgy, who are most sensitive and angry when people go over to Rome. Evangelicals tend not to mind so much, or in the, in the past they would just have regarded it as going over to the devil. I'm simplifying slightly a rather complicated subject, but the fact is that there is a significant move of Anglicans towards Rome, but it tends to be Anglican clergy and very committed lay people, and not large numbers of people. Hilaire Belloc said, I think, I'll believe in the conversion of England when I see a single village go over to Rome. And of course, it's never happened. Peter, I mean, as an Anglican, do you think Justin Welby should care more about this? Well, he should care more about it because actually the Anglican Church has always been, since the days of the first Elizabeth, a compromise between Protestant and Catholic, which has embraced both. And if you get the the Catholic side of it beginning to depart in large numbers to the Roman Catholic Church, then that compromise is over and the Church of England's is the Church of England's whole purpose begins to vanish. But that actually is, is, is something which has been going on now for a very long time. Whether there's any point in regretting it or trying to oppose it, I, I don't know. The, the point that I would make about the attempt to Catholicize the, 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 particularly the services of, of the Church of England over the past 40 years is that it seems to me to have driven quite a lot of people away. And the ve- very interesting thing about Anglicanism is that the one place where church attendance is increasing and where you find quite large congregations of traditional Anglicans worshippers is in the cathedrals, where the old-fashioned liturgy of the prayer book is still more or less stuck to, the one which was driven out by, by ecumenical modernizers, in the, particularly in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And nobody pays any attention to that fact, because the practical implications of it, that maybe the Church of England should be more Anglican, are unwelcome to people such as Justin Welby, and he doesn't want to follow that line. My response to that would be to broadly agree, but to say that you have to remember that the so-called Catholic services of the Church of England are not actually recognised by the Catholic Church as Catholic. The Catholic Church doesn't recognise the validity of Anglican orders, and it's, it's important to remember that there's actually very little we can do about that now that we have women priests. So the Catholicization of Anglican services is, I would argue, essentially really rather superficial. Well, it was, um, it, was, a, it, was a, it was a mistake, and and it doesn't, and it, it hasn't worked, and it, it it hasn't actually achieved more unity. It's probably achieved less, which is often the paradox of attempts attempts at reform. The real problem for the Church of England, it seems to me, and for and for Justin Welby and his successors, whoever they may be, is trying to keep it in being. If it isn't a national church, if it doesn't have a distinctive position as being a, a national church with a parish every covering every single square inch of England, uh, then what is it? For? 
four. And if, if it's going to do that, it has to be extraordinarily inclusive and, and rather vague about doctrine. And Damien goes on about you know, the Anglican services not being valid and Anglican orders not being valid. Well, to some extent, who cares? Uh, the, it, it doesn't really make any difference. The people who attend those services believe them to be valid, and it, it's, a, it's a theoretical point. But you've just suggested Anglicans. that being vague about doctrine was one of the advantages of the Church of England. Well, it is. It's should be the whole point doctrine? is being vague. I mean, think about the Church of England, because it wasn't just vague about doctrine. It contradicted itself internally in the most dramatic fashion about doctrine. So in other words, it, the, you know, there was virtually the whole theological spectrum there in terms of what you thought about the Eucharist. And the idea that there was a single Anglican style of services, I mean, as long ago as the 1880s, you could have um, benediction in the Anglican church or, or you could have the most fundamentalist Protestantism. And the idea that a church that encompasses both of these is doctrinally coherent, I find rather difficult to accept, and I think that's what that's well, always okay. been I, one you, of the you, reasons that people, including your own son, have converted to what you call Roman Catholicism and, and we call Catholicism. And and, and, and and there you are. But I don't actually care about it being doctrinally incoherent because these doctrines are man-made attempts to express things which 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 men can only imperfectly grasp. These anyway. doctrines are man-made. Like an odd thing, an odd thing to get, an odd thing to get worked up about. And I don't think I, I I don't think the Church of England believes they're man-made either. It just can't agree on what those doctrines are. Okay. Well, these I think there's, 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 there's I another. Have the, I would have thought the origin of these doctrines was the um, was scripture and tradition. And um, I don't think either. Script, scripture, scripture, reason, and tradition in the Anglican. Scrap, reason, and tradition. But you know, I, I, even reason tri- is not tri- man-made. Tripod. Well, let's let's. Churches are obviously man-made, and it's absurd to to disagree. But to get back to to, to Justin, well, well, the, the Bible says, on on, you know, on on this rock I will build my church. So yes, I, I know um, that. Um, so, but you've also said they're obviously man-made. So. Um, I mean, to me, this encompasses the, you know, the, the, the doctrinal confusion of Anglicanism, or shall we say the assumption that as long as you provide people with you know, nice, dignified services with sonorous language, that's fine. I'm not entirely convinced that that would have kept people going to church any more than the, the preservation of the old Latin liturgy would have kept I don't think, I think uh, I agree Catholic with you. churches full. I agree. It wouldn't necessarily have kept it, but it, it, might, have, it, it might have meant the decline was, was considerably slower than it is. And it, it does seem to me to be interesting that, that on those occasions where the Church of England returns to its fundamental uh, liturgy and to the use of the authorised version of the Bible and to its traditions in music as well, that it attracts more people into church and into contemplation of the whole question of Christianity, which is presumably the purpose of having churches at all. And if they don't go, then they don't do that. I, and I, I agree with you, and I'm sorry if my tone seems rather hostile. There's lots of evidence suggested any religious tradition that, shall we say, either returns to its fundamentals or does what it used to do very well is attractive to people in the modern spiritual marketplace. It doesn't necessarily signify a, a, a real growth or revival, but it, it, it does show that if you get a particular formula right, it will attract a segment of people who might have been going somewhere else. And Peter, what about Justin Welby's politics? I mean, he was given a standing ovation at a TUC event recently, and he's also been given an advisory position on an IPPR board, which is John McDonald's favourite think tank. What do you make of that? I mean, do you think his politics are quite left-leaning? 
probably a bit, but that's perfectly proper. Any any priest who takes the, the, the scripture seriously is going to be, in some important ways, left wing in secular terms. You just need to to read the Magnificat, which is is referred to in Fraser's interview about putting down the mighty from their seats and sending the rich empty away to see that the, the whole gospel is immensely radical in in that form. And just finally, let's talk about Bishop Bell for a moment. Bishop Bell was, of course, the Anglican priest known for his message of unity to all Christians. He died in 1958, but in the last few years, he's been accused of sexual assault. In his interview with Fraser, Justin Welby admits that he hasn't dealt with the allegations particularly well. Peter, what did you make of that part of Fraser's interview? Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that there's any kind of admission that they've made a mess of it, but there's still nothing like enough of an admission of, of how much of a mess they've made of it, and it won't be over, as far as I'm concerned, unless unless they can actually establish that George Bell was guilty by beyond reasonable doubt of the horrible crimes of which he's been accused. If they can't prove that he's been guilty of that in beyond reasonable doubt, then they have to restore his good name, put his name back on the buildings it was stripped from in that horrible Stalinist frenzy after the accusations were made against him would be a, a good thing. And I think uh, Justin Welby, again, unless he can establish uh, that George Bell was guilty beyond reasonable doubt, has to withdraw his nasty comment, which he made uh, just over a year ago, about a significant cloud still remaining over George Bell's name. Who is he to say so? If the process of, 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 of investigation doesn't uncover anything which shows that to be the case, what business has he in, in, in casting such a, a cloud over somebody else's reputation? And I mean, Bishop Bell was seen as a unifier. I mean, do you think Justin Welby likes to think of himself as a unifier, and do you see him as a unifier? Well, everybody, I suppose, likes to think of themselves as a unifier, <laughs> don't they? But I, uh, as someone who doesn't necessarily think that unity above all things is a, is a virtue, I'm not sure it would be a... A particularly good thing to be. Sometimes you have to divide people if there's a, if there's a serious issue. Uh, you have to disagree. You just have to disagree in a civilized fashion. But I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure that Church of England needs a, a unifier so much as somebody who's, who's actually prepared to put Jesus Christ back into the middle of it. And I'm not absolutely sure that's obvious to uh, obviously going on at the moment. Damien and Peter, thank you very much. And to hear more from Damien Thompson on religion. Why not check out The Spectator's Holy Smoke podcast? Just search for Holy Smoke wherever you get your podcasts from. And finally, are wood-burning stoves really all that bad? James Dellingpole writes in this week's magazine that though his stove was a disappointing purchase, what is even more disappointing is Michael Gove's crusade against them. Should a Conservative minister tell people how to heat up their homes? James joins me now, together with Fraser Nelson, a staunch defender of the wood-burning stove. So James, you've got a wood burner, but you say in your column this week that you're not a big fan. Why is that? I love the idea of wood burners. And when I got it, I was so excited. And they're beautiful and they really do put out the heat. And I, and I must admit, even now, I quite enjoy fiddling with the, the spinning wheel that adjusts the oxygen and the other thing that stops it. it, it it's good, but if it becomes your your primary means of heating the house, and I have similar problems with my oven, which is coal and, and wood-fired, it becomes a real life thief. It, it, in order to, be, to really enjoy wood burning, you've either got to be living off the grid, you know, just, just like a, a survivalist, or you've got to have retired, you've sold your hedge, hedge fund, and now you've got time on your hands to live the simple life, except it's not simple. It's, there's a reason why the Industrial Revolution happened. And it's to relieve us all of the back-breaking toll of, of, of foraging for wood and doing all this stuff. But you know, I'm not against them. I just recognise that they're, a, they're more hassle than they're worth. Fraser, you also have a wood burner. Do you agree with James? 
I do. My wood burner is easily the best thing I have bought in my life. It is so much fun. Hours of enjoyment and entertainment. Now, I differ from James. James is talking about the need to heat his house, right? I've got gas central heating. And a wood burner. And a wood burner. So the wood burner, James is tittering away here at my metropolitan cliche. I dare say when Michael Gove wants to ban these things, it's exactly on the person he's thinking of. Somebody who doesn't need it to heat his house. He just wants to have a glass of wine with his wife and look at the flames. And you know what? I plead guilty to that because it's the greatest, one of the greatest pleasures and the top three greatest pleasures of my life right now. And I can't work out why the why conservative government would want to make itself the enemy of these fairly simple pleasures. I'm not burning massive amounts of wood. I've got two or three logs, maybe, if I'm feeling indulgent. But to, to curl up there, to read some Lermontov, to have a glass of wine, to listen to some music, I mean... It is so pleasurable that somebody's got to come after it. And it seems the Conservatives are doing just that. I totally agree with Fraser's free market point. And also, I've got two similar fireplaces in my house, one of which has got the wood burner in it, and one of which is an old, old sort of, like a sort of Edwardian size fire. And the Edwardian size fireplace is absolutely bloody useless. You, you can pile a whole forest work worth of logs onto it and the heat it generates is minimal yeah, but everybody knows that I mean, yeah. the, I mean the, 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 there's a reason like gas central heat if you live in an old house like, like, like I imagine you do you haven't, I've never been invited yeah. to so, <laughs> it, if it's like that of course these things are, of course they're a nightmare to heat I mean I live in a 1930s house I was about to agree with you what, what I'm saying is that, that you compare a wood burner with a wooden fire that wood burners are so much more efficient they're so yeah. much and, and, and they pollute less so because the whole thing gets hot and it radiates heat and it's just incredible so so what i'm suggesting is that we should be encouraging people to use use wood burners rather than open fires because because if you're worried about pm 2.5 or whatever or pm 10 which we know are going down anyway then then it's it's fires that you should be open fires you'll be looking at not not wood burners but you know the funny thing is that the government policy right now is not just encouraging but subsidizing wood burners i mean there is a monastery near my old home in the highlands called pluskerton a beautiful place i recommend it to anybody to go and visit. And normally it's freezing cold there in winter, as you'd expect. It's a monastery, right? But now you go there, it's like a sauna. You know why? They've got some scam from the government whereby they are paid shedloads of money to burn wood and to heat the place. The more they burn, the more they get. So it's turned out to be a massive source of income for the monks. And now for the first time since the pre-Reformation days, monks are getting money off the government by burning wood. But what I can't work out is, of course, the monks are quite rightly taking advantage of the ridiculous subsidy system. But on one hand, the government's doing that. But on the other, it's coming after innocent souls like me. All I want to do is just stare at it for two, three hours. And I can't quite work out what Michael Gove's game is. I mean, James, you must know, you know him quite well. Why would somebody who is so conservative and so, I imagine you and I would agree with him on a lot of things, but yeah. he's got this bent to him, this sort of environmental crusading bent. And I yeah. can't work out whether it's cynical in order to get votes or whether he actually means it. Do you know what? This is, this is, this is the conversation that, that I have with my wife long into the, into the night. Because we love... The meaning of Michael Gove. The, meaning, Michael the, Gove. the meaning of Michael Gove, yeah. Because we, absolute, <laughs> we absolutely adore Gove. And we, we, you know, we go on holiday with, with the Goves because they're, they're, they're fantastically generous and fun and their children are really great, you know, real tr- tribute to the parents. But I look at his politics. I'm a great admirer of what he did as Secretary of State for Education. Yep. But it seems to me that in at DEFRA, he's done the opposite. When he, when he moved into the, the education role, he had a very clear idea 
of what needed to happen in education, and he wasn't afraid to confront the the wonks who were part of the blob in his department. He relished the battle. He relished the battle. Now he has surrendered completely on lots of issues, on some things that haven't even come out yet, which which, which should come out. I mean, I'm very worried about trees. But why do you think it is? Why do I think it is? I've got two explanations. One is that that he's he's naturally predisposed to do a good job in whatever department he works in, and he thinks that doing a good job is a, is a, uh, in this case is advancing the environmental agenda. God knows why. The other theory is that he got his fingers so badly burned by the whole Boris incident that he's lost his appetite for the fight. Right, he thinks that after having been the Kingslayer, to yeah. use a Game yeah, of yeah. Thrones analogy that you and he are both so fond of, that he doesn't want to be known as the Kingslayer because he got rid of Boris, he got rid of Cameron effectively, yeah. and now he needs to be well behaved. Oh, and I, I do have, I do have a, a, a third theory, actually, which is based on a converse, so conversations I've, I've had with him. I, I gave him a, a copy of my book, Watermelons, and he's the only person I know who has ever read that book who has not come away thinking... Oh my God! It is a, the whole global warming thing, the whole environmental thing, is a massive. Well, I he did, didn't agree with you. He he read the book and he, and he did not come away with the conclusion that the greenies were insane and wrong and, and money grubbing, etc., etc. And I think also he has a, a much greater belief in big government than I do. He he genuinely believes that government has the, the, the power to transform things for the better, whereas I don't. Right. But when he was education secretary, it was his ambition to turn the Department of Education into a free school one day. He'd shrink it and shrink it and shrink yeah. it, hand over it. And, and there it was all, you know, the great little platoons of the education yeah. there. And the thing, but of course, you know, right now your analysis of this saying that the, the great puzzle, why is Michael Gove so against people's wood-burning stoves? Yeah. You say, well, he's environment secretary, he likes doing things, here's the thing, he's going to do it. When David Cameron was going through his hug a husky phase, yeah. it was Michael Gove who was the person whispering in his ear. And my theory is that he saw that this was a great sort of middle class fashion. People were beginning to worry about putting your rubbish in A, B and C bin. He also anticipated correctly the middle class rebellion against plastic. It's a consumer trend and he thought the Conservatives should be on the right side of it. And now he thinks that that same trend is coming after wood-burning stoves. Isn't, isn't that the lesson? You, you, you must have experienced this as well. You, you've seen your, your university contemporaries and friends or whatever those who've gone into politics, they always end up disappointing. Even even the ones who start out sound at the beginning, they always sell their souls. They become subsumed into this, this world where eye-catching initiatives and su- such like are, are more important than cleaving to the truth. Or well, maybe because they have to win votes. And that's the difference between you and I, James, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, if Michael Gove were sitting here, he might say, look, it's all very well for you journalists to sound off about what is good and bad. It's my job to get in power. Getting in power means, sure, doing some things that are unpopular, but by and large, it means doing things that are popular because if you don't, nobody's going to vote you in. So what, what you and I might regard as sort of selling out might be the reality politique of being able to get into office to do something like school reform. So maybe the war on wood-burning stoves, the war on plastic bags, is the price you pay for the free schools. Yeah, if I, I agree, if, if it's a means to an end. But, but what end, ultimately? Because if he's going to be our next prime minister, as it's not totally impossible, do you want a, a sort of Blair-type prime minister who's going to do whatever it is that the focus group's find sexy at that given moment or do you want somebody with with conservative principles about free markets about personal autonomy about all the things that i certainly believe in and i would vote for I, i'm looking at gove now and thinking okay you're a mate so i'd probably get invitations to 
checkers. But that's the only upside. The downside is you'd be shafting my country, and I'm not sure I want that. <laughs> and you say, you say in your column, James, you finished saying you're on Team Truss. Can you say a bit I, more about that? I, got, I was at a, a 60th birthday party up, up north in, in the summer, and Liz Truss was there. And people were coming, coming back to me saying, I've just met Liz Truss. She is so sound. I said, what, Liz Truss? I, I, I don't know anything about it. No, she's really, really sound. Mm. I'm very excited. You know, you know that, that she has set the treasury against a lot of the green blob. James, she's what, actually, what do you mean by sound? Sound? Oh, if you've got to define it. I mean, somebody who believes in free markets, limited government, low taxes, personal responsibility. As somebody who can defend their positions from first principles, not because of something else that they heard. I think about. that's it. It is about first principles. And she's she's clearly, she's obviously read her Mises and her Hayek. So if you, if you had to pick between Truss and Gove, oh, who would you? I'm team Truss all the way. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know her that well, but yeah, as Prime Minister, she'd be great. She's a woman with balls. Yeah. And if you'd like to listen to Katie Balls interviewing Liz Truss on her new podcast, Women With Balls, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Anthony Horowitz, Julie Birchall and Jamie Bartlett. And we've got one more week left of our John Lewis voucher. We've been enjoying getting messages from our readers notifying us that we are actually losing money, but nevertheless, we're persevering with it. So if you'd like to get the subscription offer, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. This Spectator podcast is brought to you in association with Merian Global Investors, proud sponsors of Shakespeare's Globe, together committed to providing the space to perform. For a chance to win one of 50 pairs of prize tickets to the Globe's summer season, visit merianattheglobe.com. Competition terms and conditions apply.